Oh, hey, listeners. So uh, we are going to drop this uh, in between our regular episodes, a little uh, bonus item. It's a bonus. It's a little bonus item. Yeah, a little it's, treat. It's out of the, uh, outside the box of our podcast. But, you know, if you want to listen, listen. If you don't, we don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, one thing we're all about here on Block Island is fun projects, right? In the yeah. off season to keep mm-hmm. us busy, right? Yes. And you, you just worked on... Well, well, we both you, you did too. Yeah, t- yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, so there's some music in there from you, and I play one of the roles. Well, but what are we talking about? Well, our friend Lars Strodson, uh, you know, wanted to do a like a sort of a old time radio show. So right. it's like a radio play. Uh huh. And uh, we a group of us got together. You'll you'll hear the diff. I'm not gonna let's let's surprise you with who's in it. You will you may be surprised. Okay. Um, and Mark, you did some of the scoring of some of the little music intro. Yeah, right? I did so. a little music for this. And so to give you all some background, this is uh, what we're going to be playing for you right now. Is a uh, it's a Christmas themed kind of uh, yeah. It's thing, a little right? story, little story that takes place you know on Block Island in okay. the winter or in the know, winter. Right and even though Christmas has already passed, we figured yeah, there'll be what another the one. Heck? Yeah, there'll be another one. Yeah. So think reminisce over last Christmas or think about next Christmas, whatever whatever suits you. But hope you enjoy uh, the play, and I think there's going to be more to come. Lars is trying to. Um, Sort of put together a little cast of players to do these little plays now and then. And if I'm, you know, if we're in them, we, we will drop them Super in between cool. our episodes for fun. So. Yeah, it was really fun. I, I bumped into Lars up at the Springhouse, and uh, he asked me, he's like, hey, Mark, would you do some music for this thing I'm doing? I'm like, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, so like at the end, yeah, I whipped together like a little jazzy, I don't know, you know, kind of like a Charlie Brown Christmas kind of thing. Yeah. Vibe. I thought it worked. I think it worked great. And I and thought all of you guys were amazing in your parts. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It was, uh, it was kind of fun to do. And, um, you know, some of it I learned a little bit because I, I think there's some Shakespeare in there that I knew nothing yeah. about. Well, but, Lars you know. is a pretty smart dude. He is. Yeah. He is. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, hey, listen, give it a listen. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, hey, uh, thanks should for we, checking it out. Should we tell him what this thing's called, by the way? Oh, yeah. So there's that. Um, yes, it's called A Block Island Christmas Lullaby. All right. Well, without further ado, please enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Block Island Sound Radio Players is pleased to present its first original production, A Block Island Christmas Lullaby, starring Martha Ball, Malena Bell, Andre Boudreau, Violet Brown, Rich Trethaway, and Molly Price. Written by Lars Trotson. Original music by Mark Scortino. Sound recording by Mac Brown. Production by Mac Brown and Lars Trotson. Now sit back, close your eyes, and travel along with us to Block Island on a stormy Christmas Eve as four friends gather together to laugh, love, and reminisce. Connie and Steve Mason hurriedly, breathlessly, walked up the cobblestone path to the home of their friends Doris and Fred Walker. The path was lighted by an unimpressive winter sun that was dropping like an unpolished diamond through the watery sky. Connie was carrying bags full of bottled wine, nuts, and fruit. They walked past a pile of gravel that inexplicably had appeared a few months ago and was still sitting untouched. Steve was carrying an old flexible flyer sled that had a thick gold ribbon tied about it. 
When the clouds parted, the sun shone brightly but coldly, lighting the surface of the ocean and brightening the foam of the breaking waves. The wind was bad enough to cancel the Block Island ferries for the past day and a half. The two guests were hunched over because the wind was hitting their faces hard and sharp. Just as Connie reached forward to press the doorbell, the door opened and they were unexpectedly greeted by Susan Walker. A bubble of warm air created by the fire within enveloped them. Then that lovely soft bubble was swept away by a gust of harsh northeast wind. Susie! Sue was temporarily living with her parents, Doris and Fred, after returning from Europe last May. She was working on a writing project. Connie and Steve had known Sue since she was a baby. Connie, hello. I'm sorry, but I'm just on my way out. They're in there waiting for you. Food is lovely. Just be warned, they've been entertaining all afternoon. Susie, who's there? Connie and Steve. Ooh, nice antique. Antique? Hey! Oh my god, Doris, it smells so good in here. Holy cow. We've got too much food. It all smells so great. What? What is that? I've got some of my special punch. Oh, I can't wait. I've been thinking about it all day. All right, jackets off, everybody. Wait a second. That's one hell of a nice jacket there, fella. That's a great look for you. Steve's been binging on Yellowstone and 1923. It's what Kevin Costner wears, hand-weaved. I have got to get me one of those. And this is for you, Freddie. Oh, my God. For me? Flexible flyer. That is a beautiful machine. Just a beautiful machine. A machine. I like that. Oh, it's a beauty. You can get up some speed on these babies. Even the logo is beautiful. I spent hours and hours sliding on one of these. I remember flying down the hill. Craig rolled off one when he was six. <laughs> Slid right into an elm and snapped his femur. Where? Out here? Agawam Hunt Club in Rumford. Agawam Hunt Club in Rumford. I'm going to hang this on my wall, and it will be a work of art. We love it. Thank you. Okay. Drinks. Choo. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm fine. It's, um... It's the cinnamon. It gets me every time. Okay. Into the living room, everybody. There's stuffed pepper soup on the stove if anybody wants some. Oh, I've been dying to get a look at your tree. When did you put it up? It smells so fresh in here. Oh, I love the lights on the mantle. We just put it up yesterday. Freddie had it brought over on the boat on the last run before they were canceled. Got a nice shape. We've had our tree up for a week, and it's already dry, and the needles are all over the place. I love your tree because it always, almost, like, it's like, um, it's like a place where you put your memories on display, your history, all this history. There are the kids when they were born, as they get older. These right here are from when I worked at Macy's. It's like a map, or, no, it's like, um... It's like an autobiography. Where did these come from? Well, these oddly shaped ones are my grandfather's from Sweden. And this string of lights was from my grandparents. Look, the tiny bulbs screw in. The colors from the bulbs are so subdued and rich. (laughs) Yeah, not like today's colors. It's so harsh and obvious. Look at these ornaments. They keep the past so close. 
Oh, we got you that bulb in Ireland. You sure did. I love that one. So pretty. Come on, honey. Sit down. Sit here next to me. I haven't seen you in too long. It's great to see you guys. Oh, hey, what did you guys think when the power went out the other night? Oh, my phone. Sorry. I have never seen anything like that. We were looking out from the back there, looking out over the beach, and everything was completely black except for a few generator lights. It seemed as though town had vanished, and it was so weird because the ferry was getting ready to go back, and the ferry dock and the boat were really bright because there was all this blackness around it. It was like this magnificent light in complete darkness. It was strange. Mm. It was eerily serene. I knew it had something to do with the power cable from the wind farm. Oh, you did not. You thought someone had hit a pole with a car. Yeah, but when I saw it was the whole island... Well, anyway, I hate being connected to the mainland. This island should be completely self-sufficient. I don't like the high-speed internet project either. We don't need to emulate the mainland. There's a train of thought for you. You're being heretical this evening. I've never heard this before. No high-speed internet? We should be off the grid completely. Oh, well, now, Steve. I want the high-speed internet. I spend too much time watching Files Buffer. I'll tell you what, in terms of being off the grid, we should take all this conserved property and turn it into community gardens. Into, into, like, something sustainable. I was thinking, remember right after the lockdown and people were worried about food supplies and everyone said, well, we won't starve out here. We have clams, mussels, plenty of deer, green crabs. We won't starve. Why can't we take the idea of living off the sea and expand it and take all this conserved land and turn it into something we can use? We should have community vegetable gardens, orchards, cornfields, all public food. I mean, we conserve all this property to keep the island comparatively undeveloped, and it just sits there. I think we should use it. I actually kind of like that idea. Would you turn that off? We chose to live on an island. We do like the isolation. It suits us. Why not take it to the extreme? Become totally self-sufficient and self-sustaining. I'll tell you what I've been thinking about lately, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry to change the subject. I think the country is in a mental health crisis. Oh, I think that's a bit much. Really? A national mental health crisis? Well, look around you. All this fighting. Incivility. All this horrible, horrible violence. Yeah. Rudeness. I've been trying to figure this out. I think three things are impacting our mental health. One, we have two political parties whose sole purpose seems to be piss off the other side. That's half the country. That's all they want to do. And the funny thing is, if you're, say, a conservative, your anger is not assuaged when you listen to people on cable or the internet with whom you agree. You just get angrier. I just watched an old debate between Robert Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. The forum was a bunch of high school kids asking really intelligent questions, and it was civilized. So civilized. They were both full of shit, but at least it was civilized. (laughs) I can't believe how corrosive and toxic and stupid politics have become. I really don't care who either side nominates as long as they're nice. Two faceless mega corporations that do not care about us as people. How many times have you been on with your phone carrier and you're finally reduced to gibberish because there is no one to help you solve your problem? I was on the phone with interwebs the other day and they had shut off my internet and 
they kept passing me along. And I had to repeat my story over and over and over. And this kept happening all week until I was literally reduced to speaking in tongues. This is murderous. It's deflating and it's soul killing. And it makes you feel like you don't matter. Just like Steve said about the land out here. We got to carve up these huge corporations and make them accountable. Well, and as a sideline, as a corollary to that, all this talk about inflation, it's unchecked greed. And these corporations are aided and abetted by these two political parties who are oblivious to our everyday needs. These are all a threat to our mental health. These things are causing people to break down. What's the third? Talking pundits and social media. These people on the internet and cable, I just want to ask, after all this vitriol that you spew, what's the end game? What is the America that you envision? Progressives aren't going to disappear. Conservatives aren't going away. So where's the truce? These people on TV are performers. They roll their eyes, squeak up their voices, make faces. They're failed actors. Well, yeah, but does that directly damage our mental health? Yes. We're all old enough to remember when political candidates, politicians, would say to their opponent, I'm going to disagree with my friend on the other side of the aisle. We all remember that. Oh, I need some more punch. I'll get it. What I can't stand is that these people, you're right, they're performers, I'm sorry to interrupt, is that they've mastered the art of making people think that just by watching their show is some sort of patriotic act. That's right. I agree with that. They all wear these tiny American flag pins on their lapels. When in fact, the very best act of patriotism would be to shut off the TV and go to your town council meeting or school board or whatever. If these people really love their country, they'd say, get off your couch and go participate. <sighs> well, they're not going to do that. Well, I know, but... I think they've done something far more insidious. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. There you go. Nice hot punch for you. Thank you, dear. The question is, how do we get out of this cycle? You take care of the people you love as best you... Shh. I was just... Shh, shh, shh. Okay. Everybody be still. That little son of a bitch is still here. Everybody just be calm and cool now. The problem with these things is that you never can tell where their sound is coming from. I mean, sonically, they are very sophisticated. Ugh. <laughs> uh. That little guy has been harassing me for days. He stays quiet and then reappears. Fred? Shh, shh, shh. Why do they stay silent for days and then all of a sudden act up? Fred, honey, for God's sake, sit down. The cricket has been driving him crazy for a week. He's disrupting my sleep. He's living in my head. I gotta find him. Are you writing, Freddy? What are you working on? Anything new? No, uh, trying, but not getting anywhere. You're not writing. The most prolific writer of our time is not writing? I gotta figure out what to do next. He's trying to stay relevant. I think I'm depressed. I feel old. Such drama. Tell them what you're doing these days. Well, what am I doing these days? He's working on some music. Oh, oh no, no. I'm, I'm not working on anything. Just, just noodling. He's downstairs in his recording studio... 
Tell them the name of your project, honey. Project? It's just a silly little side thing. Tell them the name of your album. It's a concept album. It's just a... I'm I'm just well, you know, <laughs> lonesome tales from the pampas. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. Lonesome tales from the pampas. Lonesome tales from the pampas. Well, I've been spending a lot of time uh, down Argentine way there, Freddie. Okay, guys, it's not a serious thing. Anyway, it's a distraction from my inertia. Why? Seriously, what's going on? Well, when I heard Godard died, and I know it's stupid. But I loved all that avant-garde work he did later. Just the craziest stuff. I admired how much he stuck to his guns. I mean, they gave him an honorary Oscar. And what does he say to the Academy? And, and trust me, I'm a member. He says, go fuck yourself. Now, I love that. And when he died, I realized that anyone that had ever been an influence on me as an artist was really now finally gone. Achiever, Updike, Salinger, Peckinpah, Cassavetes... These writers... Not too patriarchal. Okay, true, true. And and maybe that's exactly my point. Even if I didn't realize it, I thought of Ginsburg, Ferlinghetti, Bukowski, and yeah, I'll say it. Oh, here we go. Hemingway. Oh, God. But... What about Beth Powell? Ida Lupino, for God's sake. Maya Darren, Dorothy Asner. Jeez. Barbara Koppel. Okay, well, very funny. All I'm going to say is these people I mentioned were all living and working in my lifetime. And now all, all are gone. And I realize that what is relevant to me is now so far in the past, who gives a shit? I mean, the critics are killing me anyway. You still have two Beatles left, honey. Why do you care anyway? Your readers love you. I write about New England and New Englanders. You're a New Englander through and through, bud. That's what you know. I think it would be a bad look for you to start writing about communities you're not a member of or you know little about to stay relevant. Fred worked on something for six months, but suddenly he doesn't want to send it to the studio. I don't want to talk about it. He had been hired to punch up the new Superman project. Oh, I'm going to get you. Tell them about your idea, hon. Well, you know the two kids that created Superman? Siegel and Schuster. These are two Jewish kids from Cleveland, right? They've got talent and ambition, but it's the Depression. There are war drums in Europe. There's bad news in the Cleveland Plain Dealer every day. Mom and dad are fighting. I mean, some of this is creative license, and these kids feel that their home, their country, and maybe even their world is circling the drain. And they feel helpless, right? So they dream up someone dropping out of the sky to save them. Moses. Yes. It was a beautiful sequence, with the newspapers and the reports coming over the radio. The question became, for me, right, the question became, can you take a moment to set up an action film that has everything to do with mood and and suspension of disbelief? I mean, you never hear that phrase anymore, do you? It's so poignant. So what I tried to do was with each bit of bad news, their character became even more powerful and unstoppable. When the Nuremberg race laws are passed in 1935, Superman dons his Clark Kent identity that allows him to move among the people When Jesse Owens competes in the Berlin Olympics and wins, boom, Superman is now faster than a speeding bullet. And when Buchenwald concentration camp opens in 1937, Superman gets his X-ray vision so he can see what's happening inside. And I showed Schuster and Siegel drawing panels, showing Superman flying in to smash through the walls and save the camp inmates. I love that. That sounds beautiful, Freddy. And when the war breaks out in Europe... 
DC prints the first comic in June 1938, and Saving Mankind actually seemed like a reasonable idea. (laughs) I made it seem like these two kids from Cleveland had found a way to save the world. So it, it was kind of a note of triumph for this artistic creation. It was the origin story, not of Superman, the person, but the origin story of Superman, the comic book character. How he was created by these two young men. I mean, that was my opening. And you don't like it? Fred, if you pick that thing up one more time, I'm going to throw it in the ocean. You said something a moment ago, when saving mankind seemed reasonable. Yeah. You don't think so? Well, if I was asked to reboot Jaws today, I'd have the shark be the hero and he'd win. Really? Yeah, fuck those guys in the boat. That shark was in its own neighborhood minding its own business. I don't understand movies anymore anyway. I mean, we just watched, what was it? Oh, honey, the um, uh, mystery. Uh, uh, it was the... I couldn't um, figure out uh, what it was about. I liked it. Oh, Knives Out, Glass Onion. Oh, Steve loved that. But nothing about it was real. And that's the trouble with movies today. They don't tell us anything about the times in which we live. There's a movie that inspired Glass Onion called The Last of Sheila, written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. It was made in the early 70s. It had, oh gosh, Diane Cannon, Raquel Welch, can you believe she's dead? James Mason was in it, Joan Hackett, I mean, great, great cast. Oh, and James Coburn. But you can look at that movie and see the fashion of the 1970s, the language, the boats, and the locations. I saw that movie almost 50 years ago with a friend, and I remember it better than The Glass Onion. I mean, here we have this transformative art form, which essentially chronicled life in the 20th century, from fashion to how we spoke to how cities and towns look, right down to the great, gritty movies of the 70s. And then they basically became, they became like these faux objects about as real as the scenes you see inside of a snow globe. But movies aren't real. Well, no, but every movie used to have elements of reality, even if it was just the cars the characters drove. I mean, now... Nothing. Not even that. Speaking of Spielberg, on our first date, we went to see E.T. It didn't start out very good, but it worked out all right. I don't know that story. How do I not know that story? I thought E.T. was cute. It was just a sweet little movie. But Steve was absolutely horrible in the theater. It was not. Tell them what happened. I was just expressing my editorial opinion about the film. Oh my God, you must have been horrible. At the end... When E.T. almost dies and then almost doesn't and then almost does, Steve all of a sudden blurts out, I just want that fucking puppet to die. (laughs) I was like, okay, this boy really does not like this movie. And I was annoyed and embarrassed. But this woman was in the row in front of us. She's an adult person turns around and has tears and mascara running down her face. I mean, her face is absolutely sopping wet, and she shouts to Steve, Shut up! Shut up! You shut up! (laughs) I I just laughed out loud. I went out to the lobby to smoke a cigarette and thought, Well, that's it for this date. I really like this girl. I forgot you used to smoke. It was love at first sight. Oh, it decidedly was not. For me it was, but I figured I had stupidly blown it. I was stupidly showing off. I was disconsolate. Then, amazingly, a couple days later, you called me. I'll tell you when I did fall in love with this man. I can tell it, but 
you'll be embarrassed. <laughs> well, now I'm the one who doesn't know the story. We had gone on a trip to New Hampshire, and we stayed at this lovely little inn. And I was in the shower, and Steve was in the other room, and we were in a hurry to get somewhere. And I called out to ask him if he was up. He said, yep. And I come around the corner, and I'm drying my hair, and he's still in bed. And I said, I thought you were up. And he looks down at his erection and goes, <laughs> I said I was up. I didn't say I was out of bed. <laughs> and that's when I knew. And I still am, you troublemaker. The other night I was watching the Titanic and we're in bed and Dora said the funniest thing. It's near the end. The boat sunk. Everybody's in the water and the passengers are screaming and thrashing about. And it's loud. I'm watching and Doris is sleeping. She opens one eye, cocks it toward the TV and says, what's happening? And I said, oh, the Titanic is sinking. And Doris goes, again? <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, hey, look. You know what? It's time. Sunset, everybody. Let's grab those drinks. After they had all poured fresh drinks and put on their jackets, they hopped into Doris's car and made the quick trip to the Hodge Preserve. Night was enveloping Block Island. The view from the Hodge Preserve entrance included that one lone tree that made it feel like they were viewing a sunset over the Serengeti. And it was that time when the refracted light made the Great Salt Pond look like a pool of molten gold. The faded light turned the dunes along Corneck Road into the drifting sands of an arid desert. Every ridge in the Mohegan Bluffs, looking so cragged and prehistoric, was etched in fine gilt-edged detail in the fading sun. It is beautiful, but it's like watching time pass. That sinking sun, the day is over, another day over. Oh, Sir John, do you remember since we lay all night in Windmill and St. George's Field? No more of that, Master Shallow. No more of that. Ha, t'was a merry night, and is Jane Nightwork alive? She lives, Master Shallow. She never could sway with me. Never, never. She would always say she could not, Master Shallow. By the mass, I could anger her to thy heart. She was a bonaroba. Doth she hold her own well? Old, old, Master Shallow. Nay, she must be old. She cannot choose but to be old. Certain, she's old. We have heard the chimes at midnight, Master Shallow. Thank you, Mr. Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, honey, honey, why are you crying? Come here. We're just having fun. I'm just... Oh. I'm sorry, I was just having a moment. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm okay. Let's go home now. Hello? Susan, in here, darling. How was the party? How are Franny and Beatrice? Everyone okay? They're amazing. B is just incredible. She's 102. The party was going okay until Chris Doran started to play the piano and everybody gathered around to sing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. 
I leaned over to this guy who was determined to take me home, and I said, I'm going to make like Vincent Minnelli and say cut. <laughs> oh. He had no idea what I was talking about. Anyway, they were having a theme party. Franny and B are just always up to something. Meet me in St. Louis. Everyone was dressed very colorfully, but it was moody. They had a table set up for pictures of family members who had passed on. I guess. I don't know. The last two years. The last two and a half years. Oh, come on. You people. I'm going upstairs to get something to read to you. These are from the letters I've been transcribing. Mom, this was written by your uncle Charlie Fenton. That's your grandpa Doug's brother. They were both overseas at the same time. Korea. Charlie was 19. This is from September 6, 1951, the day after the battle ended, right after the Battle of Bloody Ridge. I am standing among the killed. I am living and standing among the killed. Some of them were my friends, and some of them, more of them, were my enemies. But today, now that the battle is finally over, my enemies are not my enemies anymore and my friends are still my friends. I look around me, and I look at these dead sons of bitches, and this is what I also see. Dead sons of mothers, dead sons of fathers, dead sons of daughters, and dead sons of brothers. I am out of cigarettes, and I want one, even though my mouth is dry. I wonder if I will remember anything of this place except the dead bodies I see all around me. I am frightened because I know I killed some of these people myself. Did we win the battle? They say that we did, but I do not know. What have I done? Did I make a difference? I can tell you it will always make a difference to me. I will be going home soon. I know that now. There is no doubt in my mind, so please be waiting for me at the bus station when I arrive. I will need help carrying my duffel bag. Did he make it back? Connie and Steve pulled out of the walker's driveway, took a right onto Mansion Road and a left onto Corneck. They started to make their way over to the west side of the island where it was foggy. They were listening to an actor on public radio reading the ancient poem, The Seafarer. They steadily drove down these Block Island roads, past the Fred Benson Beach Pavilion and the favorite spot where the gulls hovered overhead to drop and split open their clams on the road, then taking a left at Bridgegate Square onto Dog Street. They drove past all the shops and businesses run by Block Island women, lit up beautifully with their Christmas decorations, first put up for the annual holiday stroll. Past the sturdy lobster pot tree, topped off with its beacon, then past Oddfellows Cafe, where Connie saw her friend Diane resting on the outside couch for the last time. Each of the telephone poles, is that what we still call them, Connie thought to herself, had a wreath made by Block Island gardeners, and they will hang there until after the new year. 
They drove around the statue of Rebecca and started up Spring Street. Light came from the homes and the moon and the stars. A little girl who was looking out her second-floor window was wondering if that tumultuous sea spread so magnificently before her had any memories of her own. Surely the sea had to have memories of her own. Connie and Steve were driving through these delicate filaments, filaments of memories and songs that were both luminous and breakable. Do you mind if I roll down the window? No, of course not. What are you thinking about? Oh, the ocean. The sounds of the sea. Do you want me to make you a cup of tea when we get home? Connie did not answer just yet. She was listening to her thoughts as though someone was whispering in her ear. I'm surrounded by the ocean. River water flows away from me. But ocean water flows toward me and is within me. I'm listening to the unseen waves and the rhythm of the waves is the rhythm of my heart. Ocean water is in my heart. I ask that this ocean water flowing through me and that surrounds me holds my island safe, keeps my family and friends safe, keeps me safe, and guides us safely home tonight. I would like some tea when we get home. Yes. Lullaby, starring Molly Price as Connie, Andre Boudreau as Steve, Melena Bell as Doris, Rich Trethaway as Fred, Violet Brown as Susan, Martha Ball was the narrator. This has been a Block Island Sound Radio Players production. Merry Christmas from every one of us to all of you. Mm-hmm.